Recording is flowing on my side. Flapping them audio jacks. Ah, crap. <laughs> Why do I say such dumb <laughs> the minute I start recording? <laughs> uh... Have you ever thought about the phrase bike shed beyond the phrase bike shed? And that in addition to the metaphorical sense and the literal sense of a place in which one stores bicycles, mm-hmm. it could actually be like the leadings of a bicycle like the rust maybe would rust be the shed sure maybe some oil or some like rubber (laughs) from the tires just yeah the bike's been shedding and oh thank you i didn't get it now i get it (laughs) (laughs) i've got a lot of years of deciphering tom under my belt it turns out uh i'm borderline fluent i would say i mean no one's practically fluent but i'm borderline uh, I just wanted to get some dumb shit out there to make your dumb shit sound less dumb for you. Oh, thanks, Tom. <laughs> Balancing the scales of dumb shit. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how's your week going? Hi, Steph. Uh, It's going well. I have made one very small upgrade to my workspace that has been very positive. So I already had my mechanical keyboard, probably the most critical piece of uh, tooling that I have. And then I have a reasonably nice monitor and things like that. But the other things that I'm considering are a much nicer chair, which I think will be a bigger purchase. So I'm taking my time. But I did get, I think it was like a $15 upgrade. It's a little like half circle footrest thing. So it's a soft cloth covered thing that is kind of squishy and my feet sit on top of the half circle part so there i can get kind of like any angle that makes sense uh it's very nice i really like it is it an ottoman no it's a little imagine that there was a cylinder and then we cut it right down from like one circle edge all the way down through to the other Mm -hmm. so that now there's one flat side and then one curved side opposite that flat side And so the little flat side sits on the floor and my feet sit on top of the little raised circle part. I'm totally imagining like a cheese wheel with part of it like cut out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically like that, but it's a little longer. Okay. But yeah, it's uh, basically like it's a curved surface to rest my feet on that is also soft. It's not like a little footstool sort of thing where it's like a hard flat surface at the top. I think the curved surface is probably the key that makes it as, as useful. Because I can, there's different angles that'll be useful for like where, and I can move my feet at different points throughout the day so that I'm not always in the same orientation and it'll change like how high my knees are versus at different points. So it's, it's good for getting some variation in there. This is the like most minimal intervention I can make to my workspace. I do want to figure out a better chair and also a standing setup. But for now, for $15, for the low, low price of $15, I've made stuff way better. So that's a plus in my world. That's cool. What's the name of it again? I do not know the name of it. It was I went on Amazon, looked up footrest, found the one that looked right to me and picked that, but we can include it in the show notes. And I just actually noticed under uh, my wife and I share the office in our house, and I just noticed that she has one under her desk. So she like saw mine, tried it out, liked it, bought it. And I never noticed any of that happening. So I was impressed that there was just a second one on the floor now. But yeah, so that's two people in our household that have given it the thumbs up. So there we are. That's really cool. I've also made some uh, small adjustments to my workspace today. We had a ergonomic workshop during lunch today that ThoughtBot provided for us, which was really great. And the person that ran it was wonderful. I I don't remember her name at the moment, but I'll be sure to include a link in the show notes uh, because she's definitely worth looking up because she's offering these workshops for anyone who's interested in them. 
And we covered the, you know, what's a great like desk situation and also how to work from your couch. Cause she's like, yeah, I'm a cool doctor. I'll tell you how to do that. So you can work comfortably from your couch, <laughs> which was really fun. And then we also had some stretches. So my new desk setup includes a pillow to make sure that like my elbows are at the proper height for my keyboard. And I have a yoga block underneath my feet now to make sure my feet are touching the floor now that I'm sitting up a little taller. Ah, might I recommend a small curved surface that you could put your feet on at any angle? <laughs> you can't. I have the yoga block, mm. so I'm yeah, just that, go that with put, what I have. That's a lot of votes in the corner of the yoga block. What, so I'm interested. What were the secrets about working on the couch? Not that I'm the sort of person that would ever do that, but what if I was? Oh, yeah. The uh, TLDR is lots of cushions. Like you have all the rights now, all the excuses to have lots of cushions. So it's all about making sure your back is supported and then also having a cushion underneath your knees. So that way your legs aren't flat, but you can elevate your legs a little bit, but then they're supported. And then you can have your laptop that's on your leg. So it's also raised up a bit because you don't want to crank your neck too far down to look at your laptop. So you want to raise that up. So either continue to bring your legs up to help see it, or perhaps add a pillow on top of your lap and then put your laptop on top of that, which I've done, but then my laptop gets really hot when I do that. So <laughs> I don't know about that, <laughs> but I'm also not a couch worker. I just, that's, that's not in my lifestyle. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. So I, I don't do that very often, but it was really cool that she included that for the people who prefer to work away from a desk. Yeah. I enjoy those honest moments of like, you shouldn't do this, but let's be honest, you're going to. So let's talk about how to do it in a way that's reasonable. Yep. I thought that was really cool. Oh, I have something to tell you. I tried VS code live share for the first time this week. Oh, you're actually dancing. Everyone can't see that you're dancing. That's how excited you are about this, apparently. But uh, I am. Uh, that's exciting. How was your experience with it? Did you find the same Uncanny Valley that I did? Or was it just great? I was super cranky. It's funny that I'm dancing about it. I guess I'm just excited to talk about it. <laughs> because the first time I used it, I was super cranky about it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know if it was just the mood I was in that day or what was going on, but it felt like a big productivity drain initially using the VS Code Live Share because I had some stuff that I had to get set up and then there were some issues and sort of like fumbling and it just made me think back to all the times that I've encouraged people to be like, yeah, you should pair. It's amazing. And then I was like, oh man, I feel like such a fraud because this is going so poorly right now. <laughs> but that being said, I got over myself uh, and I still advocate for pairing. It's wonderful. Please keep doing it. And tried VS Code for another time. And at that point, I'd installed like the live share extension package, which is nice. It includes like integrated audio and also the text chat as well. And then figured out how to like know where the other person is at, because that was one thing that we were having problems with the first day. I don't know if maybe we were just having some latency that was also causing us to not have a great experience with the live share feature. But once we had that figured out, it went a lot better. We did run into some oddities along the way. So there was one where the other person was driving. They wrote some code, but it looked very broken to me. It was very odd in the way that it was written. But then when I saw their screen, it looked correct. And we didn't know how to fix it except to just quit the live share and restart it. And then everything was fine again. There were a few small things like that, but now that I have used it a couple times and I got past the cranky stage, it is really nice. I understand why people like it, and it was a really nice collaborative way to work together in one file, but also get to navigate to other files while the other person's working, so I'll definitely use it again. Yeah, I'm, I'm super intrigued by the, like, we each get our own environment, but we're collaboratively editing on the same file. But I feel like maybe some of the other trade-offs that come along with that and the fact that like you can be in different files is actually very confusing. And I don't know that there's that much utility to it. Like ideally, if you're pairing, you're kind of going together. And that thing where one person goes off and starts to do some research in the browser, I almost think is 
not quite an anti-pattern with pairing, but part of the idea is like you're working together. And I think you've highlighted this in many of our conversations about pairing, but a lot of it is you get to see what the other person's doing. Like, what exactly did you type into Google to find that answer? Because that's actually, frankly, I don't know, 90% of our job is knowing what to Google. And so the idea of being able to like split our adventure within VS Code is a little bit weird. Um, But I really do like the thing where you can both have your editor settings sort of at play. So I wonder if there's a, a different minimal version of that. But well, yeah, welcome. Now you've tried one more pairing tool. Soon you'll have tried them all. Got to pair them all. But yeah. Got to pair them all. I, I have heard there's a way to see each other's browser when using VS Code Live Share. Have you heard that? Am I making that up? I feel like there's something around if you start the server from the terminal embedded within VS Code, then VS Code can proxy that like localhost port out because it's within something, something, something. I'm now done with words, but yes, <laughs> that. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we didn't get to try that because what we were doing is we had Ring Central going and we were using that to also share screens. So that way I could see everything for like the browser and everything else that we needed to share. But then we also had VS Code going. So then that way we could type code together. So that would be interesting to try next to figure out if we could get rid of the Ring Central part, but then still be able to see the browser. Yeah, you mentioned Ring Central before we started this call. And I was just like, there's another one. There's another tool that we can use for video screen share things. I don't know about you, but I have tried too many in the past few weeks. And uh, what if there were like one that we could just all, yeah, anyway, <laughs> Ring Central may be great. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. But I feel you. There's, there's so many options now. But I'm also, I won't complain. I like options. I'll take them. Yeah, frankly, having this level of connectivity, given the current state of the world is fantastic. And I should stop my griping. So I shall. So what else um, have you been working on this week? Bouncing around between a couple of things. So I finally got to try a library that I've been interested in for a while, and it's called, uh, and stay with me here, I'm going to say a word that is complicated, but uh, we're going to be fine. Uh, So the the package that I tried was Dry Monads. Uh, So it's part of a bigger collection, Dry RB, Dry Dash RB, that has a whole bunch of different gems in it that are part of it. But Dry Monads is one that sort of collects together a bunch of sort of functional programming-esque ideas, but brings them into Ruby, which sounds like it would be a bad idea, because Ruby is not necessarily a functional programming language, but... This particular thing I really, really enjoyed. So have you seen any of the dry RB stuff or dry monads or any of those before? Mm-mm, no, I'm not familiar with those. So I can include a link in the show notes to a couple of different things here. So dry monads is the package or the library that I was using. The do notation is the specific thing that was really interesting. So that's a particular page within their documentation. Uh, but the broad idea, I know of this based on a talk that I saw summarized online called railway-oriented programming, which has nothing to do with Rails. Just to be clear, it's actually, in this case, it's F-sharp is the language of choice. So the railway is based on the coding pattern that's being used. But basically, the idea is you have some workflow say it's like we have an api endpoint that takes in some data and then may create an object send an email do another thing but there's a bunch of different ways that it can fail so first we have to get in the data then we have to check that the user is logged in then we have to look up the record from the database then we have to validate the params that came in then we can create the object and then finally we're good but so it's this very sequential operation that frankly, I've struggled a lot in writing Ruby code where what I want to do is each of these steps in sequence. And if a step succeeds, I want it to pass forward whatever new data it's figured out. Like if we look up a record from the database, if we're successful, let's send that record along to the next step in the process. But if we fail, then let's stop processing there, not continue on and just go to the failure mode. And in particular, the thing that I was working on this week, it was an API endpoint that was publicly exposed 
So purposefully publicly exposed for external parties to be able to interact with our system. So it's this one endpoint that they're allowed to post data to in order to you know send us some new information. And there are all these different ways that that request can fail that we want to send back meaningful error messages. And we wanted to make those distinct. And so this railway-oriented programming thing, and particularly dry monads is the way to implement it, allowed me to say like, oh, sorry, that record that you referenced doesn't exist in our system. Or, oh, sorry, it does exist, but your organization is not yet connected with that. Or, et cetera, et cetera. So each of the different possible failure modes was uniquely enumerated, and we were able to give a, an error message that was very useful to the end user. So like, 422 unprocessable, but for this reason, or for this reason, or for this other reason. So you're essentially looking for a way like you want to run through each of these, uh, I'll just say like methods where you're checking, does this work? Does this work? This, does this work? And then a break as soon as you hit one that fails? Yes, exactly. And specifically, I want to, for each of those steps, typically I'm passing forward the value that I got from that step. So a certain way of doing this might be to use like nested blocks sort of thing where you're yielding in the value into each block. Or if you think about it in terms of like JavaScript, it might be callback hell style thing where each new layer gets nested within the other. But if it's a failure, then you break out. Like blocks are the way that you could do this. Often folks end up using uh, exceptions for this. So exceptions for control flow where we want to break out of execution if anything happens. But like if we have an extracted method, that method can't early return from the parent method that's calling it. An exception can. We can break out and do whatever the heck we want if we use exceptions, but we don't want to do that because then the control flow becomes nonlinear and it's basically like go-tos within our programming. So I've wanted something like this for a while and I've explored little versions of my own, but eventually I, I just took a look at this dry monads package and it basically gives me exactly what I want. It does, technically under the hood, it actually uses exceptions, but the code that you write does not use that. You end up with this weird sequence of yields in a method, and it does look a little bit weird. So that's a part that I'm questioning, but it, it allows me to write the code that I want where you have this data flow through it that's that's really nice. So when you introduced uh, dry monads into the application, what is it? what are the mechanics? What does it look like to wire that up? And what are the methods that you're calling to run a method and then yield the result to the next method? So... In particular, like I said, this is an API endpoint that we're exposing. So it sort of starts from a controller and I started to build out the logic there, but it was getting increasingly complicated within that controller. And I was sort of bouncing around. And so when I introduced dry monads, I was able to create a new class, which I think I put in app services, uh, which is a classic question of where to put these sort of things. But it's this object I have in mind is sort of a workflow object. So it's like a creator or a yeah, creator is probably the best word. So I have this new class that I pass in a bunch of data to. So some of the params from the controller, the ID of the record from the like URL routing, and the current user or the current organization that they're part of is actually the way it's going in this. And so I pass in those three things. And then there's uh, one method that you end up implementing typically. It doesn't have to be specifically named this way, but it's typically called call. Could be run or whatever. And then you say include dry monads, something or other, dry monads for, and then the symbol call. And so I have no idea what it's doing under the hood. I actually really want to go read it because I'm like, I don't know how this works. But the code that you end up writing then is very clear. So, so now I have this call method that takes in, I initialize with all the stuff and then I call call. And so I can say something like project equals yield find project. So that's the method find project is a private method within this class that can potentially fail. If it succeeds, then I'll get back that project and I can continue on with the other lines. But if it fails, 
then it will short circuit there and return whatever was returned from that method. So that particular method, find project, will either return a success object or a failure object. So for anyone that's familiar with it, this would be like the either monad in other programming languages where you have this type either that can either be successful or failure. And so you're able to wrap the data up and get, you're not using control flow or exceptions or anything like that, you're using data to represent the different possible outcomes. And then the magic here is all of the successes get sort of bound together and the value from each successful operation gets unwrapped and passed forward so that you're able to like use it. But if there's a failure, then we short circuit there and that failure and the associated failure message is the return of the total method. I do love that pattern. I got excited when you're talking about it returns an object that's either a success or a failure and then includes additional details on that. That is such a nicer organization of code and then just a nicer API rather than having the exception based control flow where instead like you're just raising and completely aborting and Mm -hmm. either have to rescue it and then figure out what you're going to do next versus like errors are meaningful and error can be objects just like anything else and give us back a meaningful information as to like what happened so then we can continue on with programming versus just treating it as like we have to throw our hands up in the air and we don't know what to do about it so that part sounds really nice there is a method i'm thinking of in ruby that i don't know if it would be helpful in this case Uh, it was something that Derek Pryor wrote about in a blog post uh, that we can link to in the show notes, but it's the yield self method. And that's the one that was coming to mind when you're talking about that you want to execute a function and then yield it to the next one and keep going from there. I don't know how well that plays into your scenario because it's been a while since I've used that method, but I'd be intrigued to see if it's similar behavior. I think based on my little understanding of that, that that's closer. Oh God, I'm going to say all the nonsense things here, but that's closer to functor rather than monad. So like you just want to keep passing a value forward is what and then or um, yield self, I think, were the two names for those methods. But this one is monad bind, which is a fancier thing that like unwraps the value and passes it forward as opposed to the yield self and then thing is just it's just a value that it keeps propagating forward. Whereas in this case, I have a value wrapped in a context. It's like a burrito. That's a monad joke that we don't need to dig into anymore. But man, so it's really interesting that like these words have such power, monad and functor and all of those, and they bring such overhead because like the code is just a very straightforward. There's a little bit of syntactic sugar on otherwise. Well, I've got this workflow that can fail in a bunch of different ways, and I want to stop processing if it fails. But the minute I mentioned the word monad when I was talking to my colleague on this project, he was like, oh, interesting. You know, I actually thought we might be able to do this with just functor. We don't need all of the power of monad or applicative or things. And I was like, "I maybe, I don't know. Yeah, no. And he's like, ne- never mind. I'm sorry. I did the thing that happens when people talk about these things and we get into the like academic theory. And there really is some beautiful stuff there. And it allows for this general purpose pattern. Uh, this is a very good pattern. I like this thing. But these words, man, they're just, they're complicated, which is, I think, why the Elm language forbids them entirely. Yeah, you are using all the programmer fancy terms. <laughs> and I barely know what any of them mean. So. <laughs> I love uh, visioning that scenario where you brought up the term monad and then someone gets excited and really dives into it. And it's like you slowly like just step away from the conversation. Just Homer Simpson fading into the hedge maze. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool. I'm going to pretend that I know what functor means. And uh, but, you know, just just for the people out there, how would you describe functor? Oh, is that that what we want to do right now? Um. We don't have to. I don't don't even think I could. Uh, I think so. A thing that I believe about all of this stuff is Mm -hmm. it only makes sense to learn through examples. 
So it turns out lists are examples of these. Promises in JavaScript are sort of examples of these. There's some like subtleties and pedantic reasons that it's probably not entirely true, but broadly speaking, like lists and maybe and either and all of these data types that folks can, I think, pretty quickly get comfortable with. And they have these similar operations that you want to perform, these ways that you want to chain them together. Oh, I want to do this big thing that's made up of a bunch of steps, but I don't want to have to write the code manually to do those steps over and over. That's basically, as far as I understand it, what monad and functor, where they become useful, is they're the the common binding agent among all of those. But in my experience, if you try and talk about any of those in the abstract, it becomes incredibly hard. If you try and talk about them in the context of, well, this is what it looks like for an array, this is what it looks like for a promise, this is what it looks like for this other thing, then suddenly it makes a lot more sense. And so I try and keep it focused on that. And when I made the change in the code base that I'm working on, I tried to keep it focused on the code. I was like, here's the thing. You can see how each of these methods nicely handles its own little bit. It either returns success or failure. That seems cool. The call method itself is weird because it's got a bunch of yields in it that don't really make sense because I'm not passing around blocks. And so it's abusing the Ruby syntax in a certain way that would be very unfamiliar to anyone coming into this code. I think the explicit use of the like include dry monads at the top is like, oh, okay, something's weird here. Maybe I can just go with it. But that's the only hesitation I have with using this is the weirdness of that, of that little syntactic sugar thing that's happening there. But I think it's worth it overall. So I was happy to use it. Yeah, that, that sounds really cool. I, I have found, um, this may be your experience as well, but I have found the longer I'm programming, the more willing I am to try some of those things like that. Like I, I always thought I'd become a bit more strict where I'm like, oh no, like this is, this is the one way we should do it this way. And I would just become very knowledgeable and in that area and follow all these rules and I would be the fastest programmer ever. But I'm now in more of a space where I'm like, eh, I mean, let's get the job done. Let's follow some good rules for the next person. But then let's also have some creative space to get to try things. So we're constantly pushing our boundaries and our limits. And that feels like one of those spaces where it's worth bringing it in and trying it and seeing if it works. And if it's clear enough to the next programmer that comes along as to like what package is being used and how it could be replaced or removed, then that feels like a a nice creative space and something to invest in. Yeah, I very much share that idea of there's still plenty of room. Like, I certainly don't feel like I'm done in my developer journey. I don't have an answer to how to do all the things, especially in all the different languages and all the different frameworks. And I don't know, I don't feel like software is done yet. So I definitely want to keep poking at things. And in particular, coming back to the like, what was the problem I had here? I've many times had to write code similar to this. I want to encapsulate a workflow that has a bunch of different failure modes and then one and only one happy path of success through it. And I want to make that as clear as possible. I want to make it easy to add new failure edge cases in it. I want to make all of those explicit on their own, easy to test, et cetera, et cetera. And this thing checked all of those boxes and just had kind of like a tiny little bit of weird syntax, but that's fine. I'll allow that. So yeah, this was a fun experiment. Uh, I very much went into it as an experiment. I was like, I don't know. It's got some fancy words associated. I'm a little scared, but then it turned out to be great. So I'm very happy with it. And overall, the project's really well documented and the examples were great and it worked the first time. And I didn't run into any weird stuff where like it threw an error that just totally didn't make sense. It was very, very straightforward, very easy to work with. So yeah, I was happy with it. Nice. That's cool. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge Doctor Who on UK Netflix. It's so simple. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. 
See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never been any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com slash bike shed, that's one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash bike shed. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. But yeah, that's enough of me rambling about um, weird functional programming words in Ruby, especially of all places. So uh, yeah, what else is uh, going on in your world? I've got two things. I've got a shorter thing and a longer thing. So the short one is that I have a small update on Rome Research. It's the note-taking application that I was excited last time we talked and I was sharing information about that. TLDR is that I'm now using Bear instead of Rome Research. <laughs> the lead has been successfully buried, but uh, here we are. Okay, good, good. What were the deciding factors there? Uh, so I really like the bi-directional links that Rome Research offers and the fact that I can tag an individual line versus an entire note. That part meant a great deal to me because I don't really want to have to tag an entire note with all the different topics that's related to, but I just want to sort of like dump all my thoughts into like this one note and then be able to tag individual lines and sort of section them up that way. So that part I really liked about Rome Research, but I moved away from it for a couple of reasons. It is still in beta. It's still being actively worked on. And the website can be fairly slow at times to load. And so if I wanted to jot down a quick note, the fact that it was taking that long was making it no longer a quick note. So that felt concerning. And then also they haven't figured out what their pricing structure is going to be. So there's part of me, like I know they're going to start charging for it at some point. If I commit to it right now, I'm going to feel a little too stuck when they come out with the pricing terms. And then Eliza Mitchell, a thought botter here in the Boston office who recommended Rome Research, uh, she said that she lost a couple days worth of notes using it. So she is also moving away from Rome right now until it becomes more stable. Data loss is the worst thing. It's literally my greatest, no, it's not my greatest fear, but it's a thing that I care so much about. And now that you've said that, I'm like, oh, nope. And it's like third hand for me at this point. And yet still, I'm like, oh, no, if something's going to lose my data, absolutely not. Yeah, that, that was the one that did it for me. Like as soon as she said that, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm done. I'm going to move on to something else because I need to be able to trust that this is locked in. And she's also a fan of Bear. So she's just now like my guru when it comes to whatever note application I'm going to try next. And Bear does look really nice. And their pricing is phenomenal where it's like $1.50 a month if you want to go pro. They also have a free version. And their art is amazing. It's, it's enough reason to switch right there because the Bear art makes me very happy. Are you telling me I should stop developing my own little journal note-taking app? I would never. I would never say that. You should. That's definitely a thing you should say. But I'm probably not going to. Okay, then yeah, stop and switch to Bear. Well, I don't know. I just <laughs> I just started using Bear like today. So clearly I get very gung-ho and I'm just like, oh yeah, drop everything and use this because uh, that's my current mentality. 
And then the other thing uh, that has been interesting, it's been going on for the past couple of weeks where each time I visit a website, I've been plagued with the error that reads that your connection was interrupted and that a network change was detected. And it's explicitly like that network changed error that pops up. And it's been very tedious and cumbersome to my workflow because I'm having to like go to a page, I'll get the error, I'll refresh once or twice, and then it loads. And it was occurring frequently enough that I reached out to my client's IT team, who is really wonderful because my laptop is provided by my client, the one that I'm using right now. So I reached out to them for help and they were very responsive. And the first approach that I took to resolving the issue, implying that this has been quite a saga but the the first solution was to run a command that would kill all the processes that were associated or that are associated with the MDNS responder, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but it turns out it's a core part of the Mac OS. It's used by Apple's networking service called Bonjour, which is the service that allows your Mac to see other devices like computers, printers, and Apple TVs on your local network so you can connect to them easily. So I killed all the processes that were associated with the DNS responder. I also uh, flushed the DNS cache and restarted my machine. And that worked for a little bit. Oh, I also learned along the way uh, when I was running the command line that was killing the DNS responder processes, I was passing along the HUP, the HUP uh, mm. signal as well, or the HUP commands. And I learned that that stands for hang up. And apparently not all programs respond to help signals, uh, but the signal requests of the program restart and reread all of its configuration, which I thought was pretty cool. The only thing I know about HUP is that it's often written as SIG HUP, so like the signal HUP, but I read it the first many times as SIUP. Oh, it's sighing, but upward. And then I felt silly for a lot of reasons after that, but here we are. It's <laughs> funny. So that worked for a little bit, but then the next week, uh, the errors came back. But they came back with a bit of a twist because the errors started occurring, but then several of my other applications were freezing. So my terminal would be unresponsive for like a minute or two. And I also noticed at that time that the DNS responder was chewing up like 80 to 90% of my CPU. I was like, yeah, okay, that's <laughs> that would explain why some of my applications are freezing. So then I, I really started to dig into understanding what is DNS responder? Is it important to my life? Can I just, you know, rip it out? <laughs> do and I need DNS at all? <laughs> yeah, do I need <laughs> do I need DNS? Well, the short answer for the DNS responder is don't rip it out. Uh, apparently that just, <laughs> yeah, that's bad. That'll, that'll screw up a lot of things for your machine. And so that wasn't a reasonable approach. Uh, apparently when Apple launched Yosemite, they did ditch the DNS responder process and left it out, but then they brought it back for the next OS because they realized they need it. And when they brought it back, they closed out like 300 filed bug tickets because they'd had it out and it just caused a lot of problems for people. So don't rip it out. Uh, so then the other suggestions, uh, one of them was checking like my computer local network to see if there was another computer that perhaps had the same name or IP address. And perhaps there were some problems where the DNS responder is looking for other machines that are on my local network and it's getting confused as to which one is me. And then I reached back out to my client's IT team again to ask them and say, what What do you think I should do? This is what I've tried. And the current approach that I've taken now is um, there's the open DNS client that is installed on my machine, and it provides some security for DNS to protect against like man-in-the-middle attacks or domain spoofing. So I have uninstalled that because of, there seems to be some chance that open DNS and the DNS responder are not configured correctly with each other. 
and that's causing the problem. So that's been removed, which is unfortunate, but so far, fingers crossed, (laughs) I seem to be in the clear. It's only been about 24 hours, so I should really give it a little longer before I celebrate too soon. But it was just a heck of an adventure into networking and understanding what DNS Responder does and why does Apple have it on my machine. And it was a lot of fun. I found some other useful tools for uh, watching sort of like network requests and seeing what was happening. I also installed the iStats application. Is that something you're familiar with? I don't believe so. It's one that I've seen Josh Clayton here at um, the Boston ThoughtBot office that he has used and really enjoys, but it shows you a lot of the information that you have in your activity monitor, but at a finer level. And then it also just puts it up in the menu bar. So you have easy access to a lot of the information. It has some other fun, nice things like the weather and stuff too. But that's been really handy because it's a nice way that I can just look up and keep an eye on like my CPU usage and see if MDS responder is starting to uptick and start to take up a lot of my CPU and then check on it. And so far it's good. Huh. That's, um, frankly a terrifying tale uh if i'm being entirely honest i hate when those like low level things start breaking you're like um so the like backbone of the internet is that where the problem is but in my personal version of it dns is also it's one of those acronyms that just terrifies me because anytime i've had a dns issue because of the like nine layers of caching and how long those caches live i'm like i don't know if the website's working it's impossible to tell there's too many caches between me and that website to know what the current state of the world is so anytime dns is part of the potential issues i'm just terrified and now if it's like core service on your machine that sounds terrifying I agree, but it was also kind of fun. I mean, it's not fun that it was crushing my productivity, but it was fun that I got to dabble in a world that I rarely visit and think about because it naturally just works, which is wonderful. But I'm also relieved because I started to think that I had more serious problems with my internet connection where my internet service was just terrible. And I think this is one of those, like the calls coming from inside the house where like, it's my machine. It's not at all my internet provider. They're doing their job. It's just that my machine is the one that is taking up too much CPU. It's interesting the way you're saying that, like you almost kind of enjoyed this process because it lets you explore some things like DNS is, I think part of the work that we do inherently like it's a thing worth knowing about at some level and so having something that encourages you to research a little bit more about that or generally network traffic and things like that like those are parts of how websites go to people's computers i have a similar something that used to work just stopped working but i'm much more annoyed with it i would say and i have no answers as to why it's going on there's actually two of them one is the spurious queue problem has returned That's the title of or some words that I found in a GitHub issue related to it. Uh, But basically, weird little cues show up in my terminal and in my editor every once in a while. It only happens, I think, when COC does a completion within Vim. Then suddenly stuff's just like broken and weird and cues show up sometimes. But they're not real cues. They're like phantom cues. They're spurious as the word goes. I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea why they started happening and I can't make it go away, but whatever. So whenever that happens, I kill them. I open a new Tmux pane, move to that one, close the old one, and then continue. And man, do I hate that. And then there's another one, which is for some reason, both FCF and Fugitive, which I'm using as Vim plugins, keep losing access to a temp folder that they or a temp directory or a temp file or something like that. But it means that they're both just erroring out in this really annoying way. And it's happening very regularly. And again, the only thing I can do is close Vim and restart it. And I'm just, I keep not getting over the line of like, now I just need to solve this. I'm going to spend the hour on the internet searching every Stack Overflow question ever related to this. But God, I hate when stuff just breaks. 
Yeah, if you run into something in Vim that you can't fix, and that that's that's actually terrifying to me. We'll reverse now. That's that's the terrifying thing that I don't want to hear <laughs> is that there's something broken in Vim and you don't know what to do about it. Yeah, I don't even. That's it's one of those things. Though, like I don't even know if it's Vim or if it's like sub shell processes or is it Tmux or is it the shell or is it the terminal? I don't know. It's like there's so many levels in this stack and this whole programming thing is complicated. It turns out. <laughs> You said FCF a moment ago, and it immediately made me think of a new feature that they have released that I discovered this morning that's phenomenal, and it's the preview window. Have you seen that Mm. yet? I have. I love the preview window. Yeah, I was super stoked about it when I just happened upon it this morning because I was updating my dot files. And then when I was pulling in like uh, newer packages, then I just happened to open Vim. So it was like this brand new surprise that then suddenly there's this like amazing preview of the file as I'm navigating to different files. Yeah, I'm I'm very much in love with it. Uh, does the preview window just automatically work now when you're doing like fuzzy finding for files? It has for me so far. Interesting. Are you using the files? I am. I wonder, because I think the preview thing's been around for a while, but it's a it's a command line option to the FCF executable, and you can tell it, FCF, when you're showing me any option in the list, run this command to preview it. And so that command can be like cat as like the simplest option, cat out this file, show me the contents. But then there's fancier versions of like use bat, which is a different cat, but will show syntax highlighting. Or I think there's code ray is another one. And so I've used those for a while, but I'm, I'm interested if either FCF started doing this just by default or if the thoughtbot.files have now updated the config so that they're doing it. I'm always intrigued by which layer are these things happening at? Where's the truth coming from? Is the call coming from inside the house again? When I was looking through the commits for the dot files, I didn't see anything that was FCF related, mm-hmm. like where we were turning this on this feature on by default. So I'm wondering, there's also the floating window. That was something that you had to configure if you wanted to use as well. So yeah, I, I don't know if maybe that's the thing you had to configure, but then they've turned on the preview window by default, or if now they've just made it on by default for everyone and I fell into that group. Hard to say. Do you have the floating window stuff working? Uh, you know, I don't know what the difference is between the floating window and the preview. I've only seen the preview, but I've heard there's a floating window feature as well. But I, I don't know. That just sounds strange to me. I don't know what that is. It's like a modal window in Vim. Modal in the like, uh, like a web app, you click a button and then suddenly a modal pops up. And so like a big window floating over everything else. That's a thing that NeoVim added. And then Vim 8 has recently picked it up as well. But I've tried and I haven't gotten it to work quite right. It's one of those things where like it half works, but it's sort of like overflowing out of it and then spurious cues and yada, yada, yada. So I don't know. Uh, so I was wondering if you just had it working because I want that. I'm intrigued. I was going to say, I feel like I'm going to have to be sold on that because I don't like modals. So the fact that they're like now entering my Vim environment, I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> I'm going to need someone to prove value to me. <laughs> I like that hot take. That is a good hot take right there. <laughs> But the fact that you're interested and that you want them, I'll I'll give them a chance. Yeah, I don't know what to say. It seemed nifty, but it is very much like a cosmetic thing. It's it's more like where my eyes have to move right now. Tmux, when I do FCF stuff, it pops up at the bottom. And so my eyes have to jump down. And the modal is a little more where my eyes are going to be naturally. And I think that's the reason that I like it. But I agree. Like Whenever I'm working on a project and clients are like, hey, can you put that in a modal? I'm like, I can. Do I have to? <laughs> is this a requirement now? <laughs> Uh, that's so, such yeah. a sassy programmer answer <laughs> I don't say it like that ever I don't think oh god I hope not uh, <laughs> one could put it in a modal but yeah <laughs> but why would one want to <laughs> are you aware of just how much JavaScript that requires uh, are you sure you're willing to pay that co- alright uh, 
Well, I think we've probably, I should probably be stopped at this point is mostly what I'm getting at. So what do you think? Should we wrap up? This is where the real fun begins. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we'll save it. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bike shed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.